Well, once again, we turn our attention to Ecclesiastes. The preacher has walked us through some hard truths over the past two weeks. In the first week, we saw our preacher tell us everything was hevel hevelim. That is, vanity of vanities, meaning, purpose, life is all vapor. An impenetrable fog that we wander through aimlessly, shouting out and looking for some purpose or some meaning, and we can't grasp it. Unfortunately, we are lost in a fog. The first few verses of this wonderful book speak of wandering in circles, year after year, wandering around, looking for meaning without eyes to see, without ears to hear. And last week, last week we dealt with the strong man. We dealt with death, death as the ultimate leveler. Rich or poor, wise or foolish, lazy or hardworking, we all must face death. And the preacher spoke from his own experience. He told us no matter what we do in life, death causes us to recognize how fleeting life is. But now, now we're on to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a very uh, popular section in Ecclesiastes, a section that people read at funerals or at celebrations of life. Sometimes they do it at wedding anniversaries or birthdays, coming-of-age parties. It's a forward-looking or backward-looking. It's all speaking out to that. And after two weeks and two chapters under our belt, we may feel like we have gotten a good handle on who our preacher is. We may think, I know this man. I've met him, and I've met many like him. He's a bit of a downer. He doesn't like people to enjoy life. He's quick to point out how terrible things are. He, he will look on the bad side of things. His cup's always half empty, never really half full. Some of you may even say, you know, I am this man, not me, you. <laughs> Though I hope none of you have the ego to say you are the most wise person in the world. But as we go into chapter 3, we may think that our preacher is that pessimist. He is the half cup half empty guy. And I think that's a fair estimation of him. He hasn't really proven himself otherwise. We had that little section at the end of chapter 2 that showed himself to have something else, some little push it doesn't make his description of life any more optimistic. But in chapter 3, our preacher changes it up. He takes all of our preconceived notions of who he is and what to expect in his writing, and he throws it out the window. He turns our attention from hard truths in life to discovering beauty in this life under the sun. He tells us we need to stop wallowing in our sadness and stop reveling in our victories. Rather, turn our attention to God. This God will make all things beautiful in its time. Now, our preacher shows himself to be truly God-centered in his view of life under the sun. He's not swayed by the ebb and flow of life, the ups and downs. He won't accept the term pessimistic. And he definitely won't accept the term optimistic. He places God at his center, and through it, he has found beauty. So this morning, we will look at a person who wallows in his sadness, or her sadness, only focusing on the bad things of life. They will despise cheery people. And then after doing that, we'll shift our attention to that cheery person. The one who revels in the victories of life, finding only positives, can't really relate to the people who are down and depressed and sad. 
And finally, we'll come to a description of what a Christian holds to. A person who sees both sadness and happiness in life and hands them to God to be made beautiful. Those are our three points for this morning. The pessimist, the optimist, and the Christian. That's how we'll find ourselves this morning. So, beginning with the pessimist. Let's try and lay out a description of those with a more pessimistic disposition and how they try to find beauty in life under the sun. So the pessimist has a low view of the world and life as a whole. Not a lot of good things happen to them. And even if good things do happen to them, they often are quickly overshadowed by the new bad things. I like to think of Winnie the Pooh. Eeyore. Eeyore is the perfect form of a pessimist, right? The wind blows his house down, his tail falls off. Those are terrible things that happen. But then his house is rebuilt and his tail is found and reattached. How does Eeyore respond? He's quick to point out how it will all happen over again. His tail's not much to be appreciated. His house isn't much of a house. The other characters always tell Eeyore, oh, don't be so gloomy. Do you have people telling you not to be so gloomy? You might be a pessimist. You also might be living in a children's book because if someone says gloomy in your life, that would be a surprise. I am what Christopher Robin would call gloomy. You might be thinking that's silly, but I have a disposition towards negativity. I will focus on what went wrong in a particular day and use that to justify the whole day as going poorly. A fight against it doesn't always work. And it's a great view to hold as a pastor, especially a church planting pastor. Nothing raises the spirit more than focusing on this one bad prayer during the service or one point missed during a sermon and saying, well, that service was terrible. I doubt anyone's going to come back next week. So how does a pessimist find beauty in this life under the sun? Well, they love to point out hard truths. They find a little bit of joy in raining on a bit of a parade. Their humor is often dry, they're sarcastic, they believe themselves to be more intelligent than the foolish optimist. Because those optimists are just deluding themselves. Beauty to them is seeing the dark, hard truth of life in a brand new way. That's beautiful. Oh my goodness. That makes me depressed. Verses 2 through 8 of our passage this morning lay out milestones in life. Big events, small events, things that happen on regular days, things that happen on momentous days, they range all over and are completely relatable to everyone. You could also throw in other milestones like a time to bike and a time to drive, time to create, time to destroy, those kind of things. But as we dig into it, you're going to see how a pessimist would approach this. When they look at these two sides, right, that, that's laid out in two through eight, time to, there's birth and then there's death, the pessimist will focus on the negative one. Or they'll turn each side, if it doesn't seem that negative, into a negative event. Right? A preacher begins by telling us there's a time for birth and a time for death. A pessimist would say, well, obviously there's a time for death. Everyone who is born has to die, right? Being born is the start of this miserable whole process. At least in death, you come to the end of this life. No longer do you have to chase the wind, as the preacher says. This is great. That's what they would focus on. 
How about a time to weep, a time to laugh? Pessimists would say weeping is more natural for life. Weeping is letting out the emotions. Laughing is merely covering up the sadness. You only laugh in between the moments of weeping. Life is far more sad than it is happy. As you can presume, pessimists gets invited to a lot of parties. A time to love and a time to hate, pessimists would say hate is more of an obvious reaction in life. They could say that man is full of hate. Look at all that mankind has done over history. Just this past week, it was Columbus Day. A day where we celebrate a man who brought disease to native people, put them in chains, treated them terribly. Now we celebrate him. We build, build things to him. Pessimists would say hate is the natural order of life, not love. Love only happens in those short times between long areas of hate. How about this one? This is really relatable. Time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. We could take this as directly focusing on plants and harvesting crops, which is probably what the uh, great preacher was telling and speaking about. But if we think about what we're doing right now, we just started a church, or in Christian language, we just planted a church. Pessimists will think about the planting of a church and their entire focus will not be on the success that occurs in a plant at its start. Their focus will be on when God decides to pluck up this plant. When's it going to end? They'll say, this plant won't work. It'll never grow. The people are too shy. They're too awkward. Have you ever talked to them? Goodness. They don't know how to reach out. They don't know any non-Christian people. How are they going to reach anyone? And then they'll go on and on and say, this plant will only last a few months, maybe a few years at best, and then God will pluck it up because it's not fruitful. It's not doing the job of a church. You see how the pessimist approaches life? Now many of you nod because many of you within Christianity will say, well, it's a bit of a pessimistic religion. (laughs) The Bible has what some call a pessimistic view of humanity and the world. In Psalm 14, the psalmist writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How about Romans 3? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible doesn't paint mankind or the world in a real positive light. So, the Bible-minded pessimists will point to these passages and many more describing terribleness of life. All the terrible things that Israel and the other nations did and say, see, look, right here, this is it. This is what life is. It's terrible. I have a biblical view of life. That's what the pessimists will say. But the pessimist misses. It misses some of the things in life. They don't round themselves out. They miss the beauty of birth, the sprouting of a new plant. They can't grasp the fullness of love poured out by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. They only want to focus on the bloody and gory parts. They don't want to revel in the love and beauty. Absolutely not. So we have to. We have to abandon pessimism. We can't. We can't hold to it. It's not tenable. It's not a position to hold. It will lead to depression. It will lead to mean-spirited talk. You'll be always avoided. Eventually, it will lead to destruction. 
We can't stay there. So, let's try the other side. Let's move on. That's the pessimist. Let's find some happiness. Let's look to the optimist. The optimist will cheer us up. It'll make us better. All right? The optimist is the other side of the spectrum. They have what some would call a cheery disposition. They can always find that ray of sunshine in the midst of dark clouds. And unfortunately, there's no real optimist in Winnie the Pooh. They're all just kind of there, except for Eeyore, who's really depressing. I think there is probably something to be said about the English and their lack of optimism. It's kind of funny, but I don't want to say it. It's probably the stiff upper lip and the keep calm, carry on attitude that presumes bad things are going on. But Americans, Americans are optimistic. They're known for their cheery and optimistic disposition. Many of you are going, what? Who are you talking about? There is a sense that things will always get better to Americans. All we need to do is fix this one issue and everything will get better. Get a new elected official. Things will finally be upward and onward. Dismantle the system. Get the new iPhone in my pocket. Things will finally level out. It's part of the American way, the American dream. Settlers believed in the new world, all kinds of new possibilities. They believed they would bring great joy traveling across the ocean. They didn't want to focus on the 70 days at sea in a very small ship or possibly landing in a place where you'd have to clear trees and brush just to start building a foundation. No, don't focus on that. This is new. This is exciting. This is good stuff. Let's jump ahead a few hundred years. The gold rush of the 19th century was another great American optimism. Head west and finally find your riches. Don't focus on the terrible trip to get west, the dysentery, the fording of rivers, the dangers of the wild, the tribes that would try and kill you. No, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the gold nuggets that you'll find sitting in the waters. An optimist will see beauty in the unexpected joys. That's how they find beauty. Beauty just appears. It doesn't take work to make it beautiful. It just is beautiful. No greater joy is found by an optimist than proving a pessimist wrong. (laughs) Show the gloomy people in the world that you can find happiness, and there an optimist will find beauty. Turning a frown upside down, it's the most beautiful thing to an optimist. So then how does the optimist deal with verses 2 through 8? Just the opposite of the pessimist. Look to verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. Well, healing is so much better. We should focus on the healing. We don't need to know how you got wounded, how you're in danger, how your life may end. Let's focus on how we can fix this wound. Let's make you better and then we can move on. It's a better place. Let's focus on that. Time to break down, time to build up. If we see not only as structures but also as mental and emotional stability, the optimist will grab the idea The optimist will move past the idea of a building and say, yeah, 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 sure. Weeping, breaking down, that's important, but the better thing is building ourselves up. Open ourselves up more emotionally. Yeah, weep, but lead yourself to be happier. Have a firmer ground, a foundation. Let's turn that weeping into laughing. And even if you want to move on to structures of timing to tear down and time to build up, An optimist will sit there and say, yeah, yeah, they just tore down a hundred-year-old building. Great, but what are they going to build in place of it? Could be beautiful, could be excellent, could be amazing. New things are going in its place. If it's Cedar Rapids, they may tear down a mall and replace it with two car washes and a U-Haul. That's my pessimism getting in the way. I'm sorry, I'll take that one back. Any of you who lived on the southwest side know what I'm talking about. How about verse 5? 
time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That sounds familiar to our current year. The optimists will look, like, look at a year like this where we cannot embrace, we can't shake hands, we can't greet one another with a holy kiss, which would be a little peculiar. They would see this year and say, well, we can't hug right now. We can't embrace right now. But think about how great the hug will be when we can finally get there. When we can finally hug, when I can finally embrace you, shake your hand, when we can finally be there, it's going to be great. There's that optimist showing up. So the optimist will skip over the hard parts. They want to make light of it. They want to move quickly into the good parts. Don't wallow. Sure, bad stuff happens, but that's so that we can get to the good stuff. When it comes to the Bible, the optimist will focus only on the good and loving parts. They'll have God is love tattooed somewhere below the knee or on one of their arms. And if it's in Greek, then you know they're really spiritual. They'll focus on how the early church gathered together and shared meals. How they prayed for one another. How everyone had their needs met. They'll quote Jesus and they'll say, He who has not sinned cast the first stone. What a loving statement. but they skip over the dark parts of Scripture. They don't want to see the tenth plague at the, and the death of the firstborn in Egypt. They don't want to talk about that. They'll skip over the large parts of the book of Judges and the book of Joshua because it's war and it's great sin and there's a whole bunch of terrible things going on. Those are just steps leading to the love of God poured out through Jesus Christ. We don't need to focus on that. Let's just move forward. And speaking of Jesus Christ, don't spend too much time on the gory details of the cross. No one wants to hear about that. Focus on the resurrection. Focus on the ascension. Those are great things. Focus on the kind and humble Jesus, not the judging Jesus who's flipping over tables. No one wants to hear about that. You see how just like the pessimist that lacks the full orb position that the Bible portrays, it lacks the full orb position of what life portrays. People will always think being cheery is what we should aim for. But life is more than that. We can't presume that being optimistic will make everything better. You can't be optimistic about the death of a loved one or the loss of a job. It's an untenable and exhausting position to hold. So we need to do it just like pessimism. We need to abandon it. We need to throw it away from us. It's not there. We need a new view. We need a larger view. That's where our preacher comes in. We need a God-centered view. Christian disposition. Now you may have noticed in our study of this passage, we have spent most of our time dealing with these milestones. Set out by the preacher. Verses 2 through 8 really have been our focus. It's very well known and loved across many in this world. Christians and non-Christians alike will grab these beautiful verses See it as a summation of life. Use it to reflect on all that has come and all that will come. Here's the problem. People separate verses 2 through 8 from verse 1 and from verses 9 through 15. You just take it out. Why would they do that? Well, they do it because other verses don't fit with their perspective. If you're a pessimist, you only want to see one side of 2 through 8. If you're an optimist, you only see one, you see the other side of verses 2 through 8. They don't want the full orb view that the preacher brings. Oftentimes they don't want to add God into the mix even. They'd rather just make a statement that is time for a particular thing. 
But that's not what our preacher is saying. Verse 1 is very clear. For everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. Good or bad, there is a time for it. Our preacher is telling us we can't focus on one area and dismiss the other. Both need to be focused on. Birth and death, love and hate, war and peace. These are pieces of life under the sun. We have the full range of emotion given to us. Don't push away one emotion and say, this emotion is bad, but this emotion is good. We need to feel everything. This is why in the last two chapters, our preacher was emphasizing some of the difficult truths in life. We don't always like to focus on those difficult truths, but we need to come to grips with the idea that our life is in a circular nature. We need to understand that there's nothing new under the sun. We need to come to terms with death. It is part of life under the sun. It will happen. A preacher is telling us to feel that weight. Understand every part of human life. And then we come to verse 9. Verse 9, I love it. What gain has the worker for, from his toil? He's asking the question again. you got to say, oh boy, here we go. You and I think, here is the depression again. We're going into the pessimism. It's creeping up again. He goes on in verse 10. I've seen the business of, that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Here it comes. Hevel, Hevelim, I know it. He's about to say it. Vanity of vanities, it's all meaningless. We're back in chapter 1. But what does he say in verse 11? He has made everything beautiful in its time. God has made everything beautiful in its time. You've got to scratch your head and go, that's not meaninglessness. That's not some dense fog. He's put meaning and joy and now beauty onto God. God has made everything beautiful in its time. All that is in this life will be made beautiful by God in heaven, is what he says. If God is in heaven and he is in control and making things beautiful, then what great purpose that we have just found. It means that what is going on right now, this sermon right now, right after this service, when we go get lunch, when we go read a book, when we grab a cup of coffee, when I make my daughter laugh on Monday, when my mother cried deeply and loudly at my father's funeral, all those moments caught up in my memory, they're made beautiful by God in heaven. When you buy flowers for your significant other, you appreciate the bloom, but then quickly throw them out because they wither and die. But God has made that withering beautiful. He has taken your love and shown it through tangible means. Who cares whether it withers? God has, has it in his hands, and each moment it is still a loving act to your partner. How could you not want to believe in a God like that? How could you think this isn't worth my time to appreciate? The God of the Bible says he will make all things beautiful in their time. So go out and enjoy this life, is what he says. 
You think life is meaningless. You think death ruins each and every moment. You think it is short and purposeless. God takes your pessimism, your short-sightedness, and he says, look at how beautiful it is now. You think everyone should be happy. Be cheery all the time. Everyone should look at the bright side of life. Don't be an Eeyore. Don't be so gloomy. Our preacher says, no. You can be sad. You can mourn. You can feel the weight of death. You can perceive the shortness of life and still see that it too is beautiful. Because God is in control of all things and he will make all things beautiful in their time. You know why I'm absolutely convinced of this? Absolutely convinced of this idea. I haven't given many examples at this point because I've been saving for the perfect example. We're coming here to the conclusion. I'm absolutely convinced that this is true because of the story of Jesus Christ. And this is not some, hey, Jesus opened my eyes, showed me in true faith, this is the truth right here. No, although there is that, this is something else. Just approach it as reading the story. The story of Jesus Christ. Look at what Christians believe and tell me it's not beautiful. That's what I say to you. All right, the Bible tells us that man was sinful and the relationship of God was broken. The only way to mend that relationship was through payment for the sins. That's what the Bible tells us. So, instead of punishing man for all he did, God came in the flesh. He came into this life under the sun. He came as a man and he experienced all the hardship and all the joy that can be found with life under the sun. He made friends, he loved his family, he walked this earth for 30 plus years, experiencing celebration, experiencing poverty, tiredness, hunger. And at the time, at the end of his time on this earth, he was arrested for a crime he did not commit. He was tortured with a whip and with fists. He was tried by a false court who released a murderer instead of him. He was then put to death in the worst way possible known to man at that time. He was crucified. His hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. He was left out to die by exposure, asphyxiation, or blood loss, whichever one came first. It would be considered by all people as one of the worst things imaginable done to an innocent man, let alone done to the perfect creator of the universe. That's what the Bible says. But God has made the false arrest, the torture, and the crucifixion of his son to be the most beautiful story in all of history. Though man meant it for evil, though the evil of man's heart was great in putting Jesus Christ to death, God meant it for good. Because in Jesus Christ, our sins have been paid for. He paid for our sins. We have found forgiveness for all our wrongdoings. Pessimism, pessimists, they will look at this story and they're going, look at this. Look at the hard truth. A man had to die to pay for the sins of mankind. That's so dark and horrifying. But the optimists, the optimists will sit there and say, look at this beautiful story. A man died and it was so heartbreaking, but yet there is joy coming up. Resurrection, forgiveness of sins. The story of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful story we've ever seen. 
In Jesus Christ, I found forgiveness from my pessimism, from my negativity. He's turning my sadness into joy, into a well-orbed person who sees both good and bad and handing it to God. And you can find forgiveness from your sins too. You can find forgiveness from all your wrongs, from all your faults. God will turn your life into a series of beautiful moments. Because he is in control. He is outside of this life under the sun. This is what I say to you. Turn to God. Turn to a God who makes all things beautiful in their time. Because we can find beauty in this life, and it's in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.